Hello, fellow peacemaker, or beefer if you're a hater. Thanks for joining me on episode four of Make Peace Not Beef. I'm Lily, your host. If you listened to the previous three episodes, you're probably wondering: Is this a vegan podcast? Is veganism all she's ever going to talk about? The answer is no. In fact, today we're going to switch gears, and I'm actually going to discuss how technology can help us overcome climate change. I'll be covering a wide range of topics, from solar and fusion energy to electric vehicles, lithium-ion batteries, lab-grown meat, smart cities, and a bunch of other exciting topics. Buckle up for an informative discussion on climate science, clean technology, and a more sustainable future for humanity, filled with my commentaries, of course. Without further ado, let's get into it. You probably hear about climate change all the time in the news these days, especially after the "How dare you" speech by the bold and courageous climate activist Greta Thunberg at the United Nations. How dare you! That took Instagram and Twitter by the storm, compounded by the report published by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change back in 2018, stating we had less than 12 years to act. And all of a sudden, everyone is panicking and going straight into doomsday mode. But let's talk about Greta Thunberg and the modern climate movement for a second. First of all, I think Greta is inspiring in all the work that she does for climate change. However, I do notice a growing sentiment among very progressive environmentalists from the younger generation that are anti-technology and blame human existence as the root of all evil. So, according to them, in order to stop climate change, we must consume less, eat less, travel less, because air travel pollutes the planet, buy less things, and live as frugally as possible. You might as well perish and disappear from the face of the earth to reduce your carbon footprint. While I applaud the intention of all these environmentalists, and I think 100%, we definitely need to be more mindful of our consumption. But at some point, you gotta live. So long as humans live, we will use resources, and that will pollute the planet. I am a pro-technology environmentalist, and also as an engineer myself, I believe in harnessing technology for innovation to create better lives for all of us. The key thing here is finding the right balance. How do we operate within ecological constraints? Right now, the biggest problem that's causing climate change is that we are extracting resources at a faster rate than the Earth can regenerate, and we are overproducing everything while depleting the planet's resources and wreaking havoc on everything we touch. So I believe the solution is not to use less, but to waste less. And it's also important that we learn to use resources more efficiently, and in a way that at least minimizes harm on other humans, species, and the planet. And then there's also the important topic of population control, which I will talk about in future episodes, and why that's paramount. First, I want to talk about the preppers. There's actually a growing movement called survivalism, in which a group of people who call themselves preppers are actively preparing for the impending apocalypse. I'm not making this up. Just Google doomsday preppers. Some famous celebrity preppers include actress Zoe Deschanel, radio host Ryan Seacrest, Steve Huffman, who's the co-founder of Reddit.、Um, I wonder if he's prepping Reddit for the apocalypse, and some other ones like Jamie Lee Curtis. So this is how I honestly think about this movement, right? 
If an apocalypse is really coming our way, preparing for a post-apocalyptic world doesn't really make sense. Because if the planet is going to shit, so will you. You might not even be able to grow crops because the soil is all fucked up, excuse my language, and the water is polluted with microplastics and heavy metals everywhere. At that point, it's too late. So instead of focusing your energy on surviving the apocalypse, don't. Because you won't be able to. That's why it's called an apocalypse. Duh. But even if you do, why don't we, long before that, focus on preventing ourselves from falling over the edge of the cliff in the first place? And if you're a pessimist, nihilist, realist, or even a stoic who practices premeditatio malorum, aka negative visualization, whatever it is, just know that while we're getting close, we haven't fallen over the edge yet, and there's still plenty of things we can do to prevent ourselves from escalating to that stage. But if you do absolutely nothing, then yeah, we are doomed. First of all, in order to solve climate change, we have to understand what climate change is and what's causing it. If you're thinking, Lily, I know what climate change is. I learned it when I was in grade six. Well, good for you. A lot of people use the term global warming and climate change interchangeably, but they're actually not the same thing. Global warming refers to the rise in global temperatures over time due to accumulation of greenhouse gases trapped in the atmosphere, and it is only one aspect of climate change. Climate change refers to the broader, longer-term changes to the Earth's climate patterns and landscape, including sea level rises, melting ice caps in the poles, extreme precipitation such as torrential rain, monsoons, and droughts, and also changes in soil health that alter the geography and natural processes of our planet. So now we've defined what climate change is, what's causing it. Some of you might say human activity, but it's not all that simple. You see, the Earth's climate has undergone change for millions of years on its own, including five ice ages and also periods of warming. Believe it or not, once upon a time, some 52 million years ago, the Earth went through an extreme warming phase, and Antarctica was actually a tropical paradise. Just picture Antarctica looking like Florida with palm trees everywhere. I'm not kidding, that's how warm our planet used to be at one point. Okay Lily, so you're saying climate change is natural and happens regardless of human intervention, so we shouldn't worry this time around either, right? No. This time it's different. Why? Well, first of all, those were prehistoric times where humans did not exist. We would not have been able to survive if those conditions were replicated today. The kind of climate change we're witnessing today has been proven with overwhelming scientific evidence to be caused by man-made greenhouse gases. That is, emissions from our cars, buildings, airplanes, factories, clothing, telecommunications, food systems, and all the ways we produce by burning fossil fuels and natural gas, refining oils and producing plastics. I read a fantastic book in the beginning of this year called The Uninhabitable Earth by American journalist David Wallace Wells, which delves deep into climate science and paints a bleak future of the Earth based on statistical data of what the world would look like with a 2 degree increase, 3 degrees, 5 degrees, and then 8 degrees. I basically think of this book as dystopian nonfiction, 
which means by the time you finish the book, instead of feeling relieved that it was just a novel, you feel terrified that you have to live through it all. But here's one statistic in the book that really substantiates the claim that climate change is man-made. More than half of all the industrial CO2 we've ever pumped into the atmosphere was after the year 1988. To give you some perspective, humans have been around for 200,000 years. In 1750, the Industrial Revolution began, and that's the year we really started to pump CO2 into the atmosphere. So, between 1750 and now, 50% of all the CO2 emitted came from the past 30 years, and that number is accelerating. TLDR is that climate change we're going through today is definitely caused by humans, and if we don't do something about it quick, then we are screwed. Yeah. 2020 has been an interesting year, though. Some of you are probably wondering whether COVID-19 has had an impact on climate change and global emissions. And the answer is yes. According to Global News and CNBC, there has been a record 7% drop in global CO2 emissions compared to 2019 due to a temporary reduction in transportation and flights. However, don't get too excited, because emissions will likely rebound in 2021. So. We need to find a better long-term solution to tackle the climate change, other than to be cooped up at home forever. So, how can technology help us combat climate change? The answer is clean technology or clean tech. When I say clean tech, many of you may immediately think of renewable energy sources. While clean energy plays an important role in decarbonizing our society, clean technology spans beyond just clean energy. Any technology that combats climate change, reduces emissions, and makes our society more sustainable can be considered as clean tech. So Tesla and Beyond Meat and everything else. But I roughly categorize clean tech into eight areas. They are energy, transportation, agriculture, telecommunications, smart cities, waste treatment, design, and geoengineering. And just so you know, there's no some official categorization. This is my way of categorizing it. But of course, we need innovation everywhere, in the way we shop, bank, invest, market, and package products. Let's look at how innovations in each major category is pushing the frontier of clean tech and rewriting the course of humanity's future. Number one, energy. Arguably, this is the biggest one. There are three categories within energy: energy generation, energy storage, and energy efficiency. Energy generation involves innovating new sources of renewable energy, including solar, wind, hydro, nuclear fission, nuclear fusion, that produce energy without contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, unlike burning coal. Now, fusion is going to be a game changer if we get it right. Nuclear fusion, unlike nuclear fission, which is what we currently use for nuclear power, does not produce dangerous radioactive byproducts. That means there will not be any risk of repeating Fukushima-like meltdowns, whose devastating effect Japan is still reeling from to this day. Fusion also produces four times more energy from a fission reaction, and four million more times the energy of burning coal or natural gas. The energy is abundant. The reaction itself can almost go on forever, so it's self-sustaining. 
Energy storage mostly refers to battery technology and capacitors, and it goes hand in hand with energy generation. I mean, we can generate all the solar energy we want, but because it's intermittent, how are we going to convert it into electricity and store it for later use? So energy storage and battery technology is always a hot topic, which is why you hear a lot about Tesla and its Gigafactory. Lastly, let's look at energy efficiency. Energy efficiency explores how we can better convert and transmit energy without loss. So solar panels have a relatively low efficiency between 15% to 20%, which means most of the energy from the sun is actually lost in the form of heat. Actually, as I am writing this, a team of research scientists in Berlin just broke the record for solar panel efficiency, achieving a whopping 29%. I know it doesn't seem like a lot, but this is a quantum leap from before in the world of solar efficiency, which is extremely hard to top. Number two, transportation. You've heard of Tesla, Hyperloop, Uber, Lyft, electric vehicles, autonomous cars, ride sharing, etc. All these companies are trying to reimagine large-scale transportation to be more sustainable by either using renewable energy to power a vehicle or increasing vehicle utilization. So, either promoting circular or shared economy, basically. Here are two caveats to electric vehicles, though. One. Electric vehicles are only clean if the source of electricity is clean. So, if you're using coal to generate the electricity that powers the vehicle, then sorry, you're not really helping the environment. Number two, lithium batteries, which is what's used to power electric cars and also our electronic devices. I don't understand why people call Elon Musk the modern-day Iron Man, but he should really be called Lithium Man because Tesla is trying to mine its own lithium by securing a 10,000-acre lithium deposit in Nevada. Lithium-ion batteries remain a controversial topic due to its harmful impact on the environment during mining, processing, and disposal. The world's largest lithium reserve is in the salt mines in Chile. In order to extract the lithium, we need lots of water, about 500,000 gallons per ton of lithium. Next, there's processing, in which toxic chemicals are leached into the environment. Lastly, what happens to lithium batteries after they're used? Sadly, most of them are discarded in landfills, even though there's so much recoverable value in each and every one of them. In fact, the recycling rate is less than five percent. We definitely need to do better than that. Number three, agriculture. No one really thinks about how the steak on their plate has contributed to climate change, or unless you're like me, then you do. But then I don't eat steak, so not so surprisingly. By now, the agriculture industry is one of the biggest contributors to climate change. According to UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, livestock is responsible for 14.5 percent of all anthropogenic, fancy word for human-caused emissions. So drilling that down further, cattle alone is responsible for 62% of agriculture emissions. And contrary to popular belief, most of the methane comes from cow burps, not cow farts. More fun facts: on average, it takes about a thousand liters of water to produce one liter of milk. 
One third of all the crops we produce globally is used to feed livestock. But even putting livestock aside, let's look at agriculture industry on the whole. Climate change will significantly reduce crop yields in the future as soil health deteriorates due to acidification, increased temperature, and aridity. This means the agriculture industry cannot sustain a growing population. So let's not kid ourselves. We need a paradigm shift in our food systems now. Beyond Meat is a company that is rethinking our food systems for long-term sustainability by introducing plant-based meat alternatives that satisfy our palates. It's not the only company in the rapidly growing plant-based movement, of course. There's also、um, Impossible Foods, Just Inc, known for its egg alternative in the states, and a bunch of companies making dairy alternatives. You know, almond milk, soy milk, oat milk, coconut milk, whatever Starbucks offers nowadays. Besides the enormous environmental benefits that come from reducing your meat and dairy consumption, there are also incredible lifelong health benefits. But if you just love the taste of that delectable chicken nugget fried to a golden crisp on the outside and tender on the inside, don't despair, because I've got some good news for you. Recently, Singapore became the first country in the world to serve lab-grown meat in its restaurants, produced by San Francisco startup Eat Just. And now everyone on the internet wants a bite. While this is exciting and promising, cell-based meat is not a silver bullet yet because it's incredibly difficult to grow and scale, and the costs are exorbitant. I mean, literally, to grow the meat, you need to extract the stem cells from the animal's tissue, nurture them in a petri dish with the right temperature, environment, amino acids, so that they can multiply enough to feed a nation. It's not rocket science, but it's bioscience, so it's still pretty damn hard. We still have a lot ahead of us, but this is a major milestone worth celebrating. There are already journalists and YouTubers doing reviews and taste tests of lab-grown meat, so go check them out. Number four, telecommunications, aka the internet and everything else that keeps us connected. Did you know that a single Google search produces 0.2 grams of carbon dioxide? And when you multiply this by 5.6 billion searches per day, you get annual emissions equivalent to that of 3.4 million cars. I know, crazy, right? Who would have thought that every time you type "how to lose weight" or "what time is it" in Google, you're exerting a carbon footprint? By the way, according to Google, those are two of the top 10 most commonly searched questions. I know, speaks volumes. But Google's probably got a really effective cache to catch those popular questions. So the sad news, yes, you're polluting the planet a little bit every time you use the internet, your phone, to stream Netflix or watch YouTube. The communications industry is projected to use up to 20% of global electricity by 2030. And in countries where electricity is still at least partially produced from coal, that means every time you stream your favorite episode of Netflix. You could be depriving someone else of fresh drinking water, as Tatiana Schlossberg mentioned in her book *Inconspicuous Consumption*. Great book, by the way. Also read that. I suggest the audiobook because she's got this very sarcastic monotone and dry humor, which really comes out in the audible version, and I happen to really like it. So why is it that watching Netflix pollutes someone else's drinking water? Well, because coal ash is one of the byproducts of burning coal to produce electricity, and it can easily contaminate nearby rivers and waterways. 
According to Cisco, by 2021, video consumption will drive 80% of internet traffic. And streaming videos also happen to be one of the most energy intensive. That means a lot more Netflix and YouTube videos, and a lot more data centers will need to be built to store more and more data, also known as the cloud. Data centers gobble up a ton of water to cool the labor-intensive servers that are running 24-7, hosting content, so you can watch Ariana Grande's latest music video on YouTube at any given time anywhere in the world. Also, your emails. They take up a bunch of space on the cloud. So one quick way to reduce your carbon footprint is to unsubscribe to all those mailing lists that you don't need and delete your old emails. So far, we've only talked about software and computer processes. Don't forget, there's a hardware component to the telecommunications industry. That is, fiber cables, data centers, and clusters of servers, electronic devices. Just think about all the electronic devices that we own and discard for an upgrade every few years. If we don't dispose of them properly, they end up as e-waste in the landfill. How are you related to a five-year-old child in the Congo? There's a chance that he or she mined the cobalt that is used in the lithium-ion battery inside your smartphone. While governments worldwide are strictly banning child labor, unfortunately, many countries still practice unfair labor where children are underpaid and work in dangerous conditions to mine rare earth metals just so we can buy a new shiny iPhone X. Then there's 5G, because millennials are so impatient and the internet can and should always run faster, right? 5G means building a nationwide infrastructure consisting of more cell towers and networks to accelerate data transmission speed, even if that comes at the expense of ecological degradation that has been shown to induce mutations in bird populations that threaten their survival and reduce their fertility. So as you can see, a growing appetite for the digital world not only causes environmental problems, but also raises ethical concerns. My question for you is, do you really need that iPhone 11, even though your iPhone 10 is perfectly functional? And also, do you really need to have a YouTube video running in the background when you're doing house chores? Why not just put on some music instead? But I agree, on a societal level, we need to talk about our unhealthy social media addiction. Sometimes, you just gotta unplug. And even then, your devices are consuming ghost power, which I will not talk about today to prevent both you and I from falling into depression. Okay, so far we've covered energy, transportation, agriculture, and telecommunications. I probably need a sip of water before I continue. How do people's mouths not get dry from podcasting and just talking for an hour straight? I salute those people, especially Joe Rogan. Like, I don't know how he does those three-hour interviews. I'll be right back. Number five, smart cities. What are smart cities? Are cities currently dumb? Well, if dumb means inefficient, then kind of. Well, let's think about how the electric grid currently works in the city. So there's probably a centralized power plant generating all the electricity, which is then transmitted through power lines to your house, and then powers all the devices in your house. This transmission is one way and from top to bottom, from the power plant to the house, and some energy is lost during transmission. On the other hand, 
if we had a smart grid, which is a decentralized electrical network that enables two-way communication between the energy producer and the consumer, then the consumer, such as the household, can actually relay information back to the producer, and the producer can monitor this data real-time and supply energy on demand, scale up or down accordingly, dramatically boosting the energy efficiency. This way, we don't have to constantly generate all this extra energy and to deliver it to all the households that aren't even using it. In addition, we can layer a real-time energy trading mechanism on top of the smart grid, in which a system that has multiple energy producers and consumers can sell off extra energy generated back onto the grid. There are also something called prosumers, which is both an energy producer and consumer, such as a house with solar panels. Suppose you have rooftop solar panels. Then, if you generate more energy than you end up using, wouldn't it be great if you could sell off the extra energy back onto the market? That's the idea. So far, I've only talked about the smart grid, but a smart city encompasses so much more. I'm talking about a smart traffic system that adapts to changing traffic flows to reduce congestion and emissions. Smart traffic lines that respond to real-time pedestrian and traffic data. Smart buildings and devices that are energy efficient. Smart trash cans that can sort garbage through AI and computer vision. And also better data security, healthcare, mobility through IoT or the Internet of Things, which is basically everything that you can think of connected to the internet. Now, while I think IoT is a useful technology to enhance communication, IoT also comes at the expense of sharply increasing energy consumption as more and more devices and wearables become connected to the internet. But here's the thing though. I get why it may be helpful to connect your Amazon Echo to the internet so you can ask her for the weather, news, date and time, etc. But is it really necessary to connect your car to the internet just so you can pull up your phone and open your car door by opening an app on your phone and then tapping a button? That's what I call unnecessary complexity in the first world. And in a later episode, I'm going to talk about minimalism and downsizing and teaching you how to spot things that you don't really need. Number six, waste treatment. I know you don't want to hear about the obvious, but we waste a lot of things. Why? Because we buy a bunch of things we don't need or end up using. Food waste is the biggest untapped energy source, so I'll focus on that. According to the United Nations Environment Program, nearly half of all fruit and vegetables produced each year are wasted. On the whole, we waste one-third of all the food we produce for human consumption. Meanwhile, people are dying of famine in this world. This is insane. What's happening? Something is terribly off here. Why is it that we're overproducing, overeating, and yet at the same time getting sick and malnourished? Because most of us aren't eating nutrient-dense food that nourish our bodies, and some of us can't even have access to proper food. So why are we wasting so much food, and what can we do about it? Food gets lost during production, processing, storage, transportation, and then the real devil is us, over-critical, over-selective, and picky consumers who want apples that are perfectly round and tomatoes with no bruises, 
So imperfect produce that are perfectly nutritious are tossed away, and many don't even make it to the supermarket shelf. To make matters worse, clever marketing schemes and attractive packaging is making consumers harder to say no to candies, chocolate bars, chips, and other highly synthetic and processed foods that overstimulate your senses with artificial flavors. So, how are clean tech companies combating food waste? A company called Genesis is turning wasted food into bioplastics, while other companies focus on innovating packaging so the food stays fresh longer. Oh wait, I haven't even talked about takeouts yet, and how much garbage that produces, and how many plastic takeout containers end up in landfill. I'm not going to get into that today, but I want to give you a couple of tips to reduce your waste, especially during the pandemic, where people tend to stockpile in a frenzy. I get it. You should have some food in store for emergency, but there's no point to buy a huge bag of apples just because it's on sale. If you're only going to eat three and toss out the rest anyway. To finish this one up, four quick tips to reduce food waste: eat local, eat natural, buy fresh, cook your own meals. Now, don't just stop at reducing food waste. Ask yourself, what else am I wasting? Is it clothes, gadgets, notebooks, shoes, time? Number seven, design. So this one is kind of vague. How does design fall under clean technology? And what kind of design are we talking about? Interior design, fashion design, urban design, industrial design, software design. All of the above, actually. Any process or product that involves design, we should always keep in mind its environmental impact. There are innovative ways to design buildings and to use space and energy more efficiently. Ways to design and streamline supply chains to cut down emissions and overhead costs. Ways to design software that are less CPU intensive, and ways to design fashionable clothes without fast fashion. Did you know that the textile industry is the world's second biggest polluter of water? Water is used every step of the process, from growing cotton to dyeing the clothes to make them colorful and appealing to consumers, and yet billions of gallons of wastewater is dumped into the river every year. As much as 70% of Asia's rivers are polluted by the textile industry, and if you love a good pair of jeans, according to the UN, up to 10,000 liters of water is required to make a single pair of jeans. That's seven years of drinking water, seven years just for one pair of jeans. Crazy. I think I'm definitely guilty of owning too many pairs of jeans, but. Thankfully, I've grown to be a lot more conscious of my consumption. I rarely buy new clothes nowadays unless I absolutely need to, and when I do, I invest in a sustainable, ethical brand that I know I can trust and will last long. There's some local brands where I live. I live in Toronto, by the way, like Frank and Oak and Cotton that incorporate environmental sustainability into their core philosophy. And older prestigious brands like Levi's is really ramping up their sustainability game these days, and came up with waterless jeans. I think these are all great progress. However, we all need to resist the urge to buy less, but buy more high-quality and durable clothes that will last longer. And always research the brand and their practice. Number eight. Last but not least, geoengineering. Oh my God, 
This is the last one. We're getting so close to the end. Yay. Okay, so really briefly, what is geoengineering and what does it entail? Geoengineering is the large-scale manipulation of the Earth's climate and natural processes through science and engineering. Geoengineering is often a hotly debated topic when it comes to climate change because it could potentially induce some irreversible effects, which is why it's so hard to reach a scientific consensus on whether geoengineering is good or bad. Let's look at some examples of geoengineering. One is carbon capture and sequestration. Basically, you know how we're pumping so much CO2 into the atmosphere, it gets trapped there and then causes global warming? The idea is to undo the CO2 by sucking it out of the atmosphere. It's much harder than it sounds, because it's not like the CO2 is concentrated in one area of the atmosphere and you can just magically remove it. It's literally everywhere. Before 1750, which is when the Industrial Revolution took place, the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere remained roughly constant at 280 parts per million, which means 280 CO2 particles per million molecules of the air. Then, after 1750, it began growing exponentially. By 1980, we're at 340. By 2000, 350. By 2010, 390. And finally, in 2020, we're at 417. Ladies and gentlemen, we broke the Guinness record for CO2 concentration because 417 is the highest it's ever been for the past 800,000 years on Earth. And that is not something we should be proud of because 417 basically screams danger. In fact, we should be deeply alarmed. So that's why a lot of scientists and engineers are betting on carbon capture and storage. The other way we can potentially cool the planet through geoengineering is through what's called solar geoengineering, which is basically pumping sulfuric aerosol into the stratosphere to cool the planet, because those microscopic aerosol particles will deflect sunlight. However, you can probably already guess why it's controversial. It's in the name. It's called sulfuric aerosol. So yeah, acid rain is a concern and also there will be less sunlight available to generate solar power. So we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot if we do this. But there are many proponents of solar geoengineering as well. Personally, I think of this as a last resort. I'm a bigger fan of the carbon capture method though. But the key question is how? When carbon dioxide is literally present everywhere in the world in teeny tiny concentrations. More realistically, instead of trying to suck the CO2 out of the atmosphere, Nowadays, carbon capture mostly deals with anticipating where we're going to emit CO2 in our processes, such as chemical processes in a factory. So we put a giant filter there to catch all the CO2, compress it, and store it safely. everyone we did it i did it you did it literally i've never talked for this long by myself except for when i'm you know giving myself a pep talk at night in my bedroom and you did it i mean your years did it you listened all the way to the end and now you're an expert in clean tech so to sum up in this episode i gave you an overview of how we can use clean technology to combat climate change of course my list is not exhaustive 
There's plenty other modern technologies I did not cover, such as AI, data science, machine learning that we can leverage to help us predict, simulate, and analyze climate data and optimize our processes. But don't despair, there will be future episodes on AI, data science, machine learning, computer vision, and how they're instrumental to decarbonizing our economy. So stay tuned for more exciting content, and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace and love, everyone. I hope you liked this episode and found it helpful. If you're still a hater, aka beefer, well, thank you for being such a loyal beefer and listening all the way through. Don't forget to subscribe for better episodes down the road. Your support is my creative juice. If you have any questions, shoot me an email at lily at makepeacenotbeef.com. That's lily spelled L-I-L-L-Y. Feel free to check out my website, makepeacenotbeef.com for more information. Peace out, everyone. I'll see you in the next episode.